Well, good morning. It's good to be with you guys today. Uh, welcome to our family gathering, especially if you're new with us. Um, we call it our family gathering um, because we're a family. I was uh, at a conference down in Atlanta this week, and it was a good reminder because uh, they kept, uh, whenever they would refer to the church, they would keep, they kept saying, "We're the church is not like a family. The church is a family." And there's a big distinction between that. We really do believe that we are family with one another because of what God has done through His Son, Jesus Christ. And so we hope that uh, as we press into that, what it means to be a family, that we would love for one another, care for one another, call each other out, help each other to grow in Christ so that we look more and more like our big brother Jesus. Um, and so we gather as a, as a full church on Sunday mornings. That's essentially what we're trying to do is to encourage one another, help each other to grow, to be like Jesus and be equipped to be sent out as God's family so that we could tell others of the great love of our big brother Jesus and our heavenly father so that more and more people would come to know this love and want to experience what the family's like. So that's what we're doing this morning. Um, if you haven't been with us, we started a, a new series in uh, Matthew's Gospel last week. We're looking at the Beatitudes, which is in Matthew 5, verses 1 to 10. Um, we're going to have the verses up here on the screen. I forget what the page number is, though, in the Bible, so if, if you find it, you can shout it out if you're going to look at it there. Um, but it's, it, the Beatitudes are maybe Jesus' most famous teaching Uh, And each week, instead of kind of breezing through all of them, what we're doing is kind of taking a a slow approach and we're looking at each of those statements on its own to see what does it look like for us to live and participate in Jesus' kingdom. And and that's what Matthew's driving at. He, He is wanting us to see that Jesus is a king. Oftentimes we refer to Jesus as a savior, uh, we, we refer to him as God, maybe. We, we understand that he has come to forgive our sins, but Jesus hasn't come to just forgive our sins. He's come to forgive us so that we might be cleansed and then live in his new kingdom. And the way that Jesus talks about that kingdom isn't some far-off fairyland that's coming uh, on a cloud someday, although it's coming in fullness when he returns. But his, he says the kingdom is here. Because he's come. And so for for those of us that call him Lord, that means that we begin to participate in his kingdom now. And, And oftentimes what that looks like is being a people that are completely curious to the world. That when it comes to the value system that we live out, when it comes to the the kinds of lives that we pursue with one another and the way that we go about our jobs and our school and and our friendships and our family is upside down from the world. In fact, if you asked us, what does it look like to prosper in Jesus' kingdom? The answer would be, take what the world is doing and flip it on its head. That's what it would look like. And so we, we began that last week by saying that what it looks like to, to just to enter in the front door of his kingdom means that we are poor in spirit. The other way to say that, we said it last week, is that we come to God not with our performance, not with our record, not with our, our shame, not with anything that we've done or what's been done to us. We come to him with nothing. We come to him in a place of need. And when we acknowledge that need, when we confess it, When we cast that need on God, we find 
that Jesus fulfills this promise, which he gives us the kingdom. He gives us the resources, the riches of what he's done to meet us in our time of need. So we're going to look at the second of Jesus' statements, and um, they don't get more positive. <laughs> I'm sorry to say, from, from the first statement to the next statement, um, it, in fact, it looks like it goes downhill, but we'll see what, uh, what Jesus is getting at. But his second statement says this in Matthew 5, verse 4, simply, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Prosperous are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, right away, as I said, it, it, Jesus' kingdom is upside down from from the culture that we live in. And if the word blessed means anything like happy or successful or prosperous, then we have to ask ourselves, what in the world is Jesus talking about? Prosperous are those who mourn. Happy are... I mean, it almost sounds like he's saying happy are the unhappy. Right? Up are the down. Slow are the fast. It's a complete paradox, right? What in the world is he talking about? Well, we, we have to understand what, what is it that we're supposed to be mourning? And how does that actually lead to our prosperity? So, um, those of you, I mean, how many of you experience loss, grief, pain in this world? Yeah, my hand's up too. All of us have. What, what does it mean to mourn? This isn't a, th- a theoretical question, but what does it mean to mourn? What is mourning? Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, so to mourn is to is to grieve the loss of something of value, which means that you experienced it in the first place, right? So what are some of the things that we mourn? What's some of the grief that we experience, either you personally or generally? Loss of a loved one, sure. That's the greatest, in many ways, the most difficult loss to endure personally. What else? Loss of, yeah, expectations and dreams. We had a certain vision for our future, and that vision didn't work out the way that we planned. Loss of a job or a career, yeah, it can be devastating. Not just the financial loss of not having a job, but the emotional loss of, of maybe, uh, maybe we we took our job as as a very serious thing, and we felt like we were contributing to an organization of the world, and then we no longer have that, and so we lose our sense of purpose. Yeah, loss of health, sure. Experiencing sickness and pain, yeah. Yeah, sometimes that's the most difficult um, mourning that we go through is is mourning the loss of other people. I mean, sometimes we think like I can bear the the weight of my own grief, but when I have to bear the weight of somebody else, I can't I can't emotionally take their grief upon myself, and sometimes that's worse because you feel even more hopeless. There's a, I mean, is this a true statement? There is a lot to mourn over, right? Um, I've heard it said that the definition of an adolescent 
is someone who's 16 years or younger or someone who thinks like that. And you have to be an adolescent to, to not realize that the world that we live in is a world that's full of grief and full of mourning and full of pain. Now, even though all of those things are true and Jesus has a lot to say about that kind of loss, there is a particular kind of loss that Jesus is actually referring to when he said, blessed are those who mourn. Uh, because that language of mourning and comfort, it actually comes straight from the Old Testament prophets. That when Jesus says those things, and Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience, and, and when Matthew is writing that to his audience who've experienced a particular kind of loss, their, their radar would be on high alert. They would understand exactly what Jesus was referring to. And what he was referring to was the particular loss that Israel experienced when they were ripped into exile. If you know anything about Israel's history, they were a nation that God established, and for thousands of years they were in the Middle East and they were an independent nation. But through their own sin, that nation began to fracture into into two different nations, and then those nations, because they didn't repent and return back to God, eventually they were taken over by foreign nations. And the last of that happened when the nation of Babylon came in and and went off with all of the riches of Israel and took their best and brightest people and destroyed the temple, which was where God was supposed to live and have his reign on earth. And they're going, what in the world is happening? And then the book of Lamentations is a book that was written about the the particular mourning that they were going through as people in exile. And this is what it says in Lamentations 5. Joy is gone from our hearts. Our dancing has turned into mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. Because of this, our hearts are faint. Because of these things, our eyes grow dim for Mount Zion, which lies desolate. He's talking about the city of Jerusalem. Restore us to yourself, Lord, that we may return. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us. And you remain exceedingly angry with us. That's how the book of Lamentations ends. There's, there's not a joyful exclamation point on the end of that sentence. It's just, maybe God will forever be angry with us. Just I, I Try to imagine, if you will, just for a second, what it must have been like to be an Israelite. To be someone who is torn from their home, and from their land, the place that God said, this, this place will be a place of blessing for you, a place where you can find me, and now it's gone. The place of God's blessing has been destroyed. The, the temple that you would pilgrimage to on a yearly basis to, to meet with God and to know that He's there and to know that He's good and to know that He's in control is now just a heap of rubble. And you long for things to return the way that God intended them to be. And you know in your heart of hearts that you have nobody to blame but yourself for the destruction. That's a heartbreaking picture, right? This is the portrait of the kind of mourning that Jesus is talking about in his Beatitudes. Now you might say, okay, but that's all well and good. I can kind of 
I can try to picture what that looks like, but I'm not in exile. I haven't experienced that kind of removal. Oh, but you have. You just may not realize it. I mentioned already, the truth is our world is an incredibly broken place. Full of pain and sorrow. We we did just uh, remember a couple days ago the anniversary of 9-11, right? And every time I watch the images again of, of planes flying into buildings, my heart just sinks. And I think, how in the world are we as human beings capable of such destruction? But it's not just the big and grand things either. There's brokenness that's happening on an individual basis. Uh, one of our, our, Mandy and my friends, uh, who has been going through the foster process uh, along with us, she's been kind of, um, she kind of started the idea of it, but she, she's uh, just become licensed recently. And they were placed with their first uh, foster son. And I think, man, that's awesome, you know? Like we're giving a home to a child that needs it and, and uh, they're, they're participating with God in the restoration of our state and that's a good thing and they, they want to see kids become well again. And then as she was talking with her foster son, her foster son, thinking that the new home that he's in is going to be just like the home that he just left, asked our friend, about the manner that she would like to abuse him this week and described it in great detail. Because he just assumes that the home that he's now in is going to be like the home that he came from. And when you start to realize the language that he's using to describe the home in which he came from, you realize how broken this world is. If we're being honest with ourselves, we have plenty of reasons to declare, like the author of Lamentations, the crown has fallen from our heads. Woe to us. This world is broken. Human existence is in an appalling condition. And it's so appalling that we don't even realize how bad it is. Part of the evidence of the fact that it's broken is that we turn a blind eye to things like that. We're so anesthetized to it because we watch the daily news and we just get snippets three, you know, 30 seconds after another of this murder and that murder and this thing and that thing. And then we turn our TV off and we go, okay, well, there's a summary of the day. I realize the news doesn't always show the good things that are happening, but still... We've bought the lie and we think that this is just the way that things are. It's not the truth. In fact, we're never going to find comfort unless we come to grips with the brokenness of our world. We can't avoid it. We can't wish it away. We have to face it. Now, the way that you face it is what it means to mourn. When Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, he's saying, blessed are those who have come to grips with the brokenness of this world and are finding healing out of it, which is my comfort. So how do we do that? What does it actually mean to be those who mourn? What does it mean to live in Jesus' kingdom as mourners and not just the kingdom of this world? And uh, I want to go through a couple steps with you that I think are necessary 
Um, and that is that we have to name the brokenness. We have to give it a name. We have to claim the brokenness. And we have to exchange the brokenness. All right? Name it, claim it, exchange it. Now, if you're watching TV at 1 o'clock in the morning and someone talks about naming and claiming something, turn the TV off immediately. Do not give them $1,000, okay? That is a completely different thing. But Jesus said, if, if we're able to name the brokenness, claim the brokenness, and exchange it, there is great comfort that awaits us on the other side. So what does it mean to name the brokenness? Well, you have to ask the question, why... Why are we so bad to each other? Why is there such havoc in the world? And and truthfully, every single person on this planet, because they know something is wrong, has to find a reason for that reality. They have to find an answer to that question. You will not be able to sleep at night if you don't find a sufficient answer to that question. Everyone has to. And since the beginning of our race... Every person has had to wrestle through the answer to that question. Now, now, we find all kinds of insufficient answers. We're really good at that. I mean, either we'll, you know, we might blame evolution or we might blame the economic conditions of our country. We might blame political discord. We might look at people's upbringing and go, well, they're just a product of the brokenness of their family. Or maybe they just have like low self-esteem and they need a pick-me-up. Now, here's the thing with all of those things. No matter what answer you find, all of those are symptoms, right? Even if you say, well, it's, it's a product of their upbringing. That's why they're so like that. Well, then... It goes back to their parents then. Well, how did their parents then become like that to create an environment for them to grow up in it? Well, it was their parents. Okay, well then how about their parents? Where did it come from for them? And eventually you have to go all the way back to the beginning. Everything else is a symptom. You have to understand the root cause of it. We had a a friend several years ago who um, late in the evening one day called us up, called Mandy up because... Uh, to ask her advice about something. She was in enormous pain. Huge amount of pain. And she's going, I don't know what to do with this. It just keeps going from bad to worse to worse. And um, Mandy, I remember hearing her on the phone and she asked a question, which I thought was a very odd question at the time. She asked her, is there any possibility that you could be pregnant? And the answer was, I don't think so. I mean, we're doing all the steps and you know, we're careful with everything. I don't think there's any way. Okay, well, I, if I were in your position, I know it's inconvenient. Mandy hates to do this. She hates to, like, send people to the ER because nine times out of ten, it's something that could have been resolved at home. And Mandy thinks like somebody who doesn't like to be inconvenient. So she's like, if it were me, I'd probably go to the ER. Well, she goes to the ER, and we find out, I think it was the next morning, right, um, that, in fact, she was pregnant that uh, an egg was fertilized, it traveled down the fallopian tube, and instead of going into her uterus, it got stuck in the fallopian tube. It's called ectopic pregnancy. And there, the egg was doing its thing, it was growing, and it was multiplying everything that it's supposed to do, but it got itself wedged in there, and it couldn't get out, and it grew bigger and bigger and bigger until the tube itself burst. And the pain that she was experiencing was her abdomen filling with blood. She would have died hours later if she had not gone to the ER. The first step in mourning, my friends, is you have to name what's really wrong. 
You can't dance around it. You can't mislabel it because if you mislabel it, it's a matter of life and death. It's not a trivial thing. And the, the Bible is clear. God's story is It does not beat around the bush when it talks about the brokenness of the world. It does not blame it on lesser things. It gets to the root cause and it says that the cause of the brokenness is sin. It's sin. That's not a very popular word today. But it's the reality that we need to... Cancer is not a very popular word, but how do you deal with it? You come to reality with what you have. You, you, you don't wish it away. You don't say, well, I'll just, I'll go my own path. I'll come up with some other explanation for it. No, those other explanations don't work, which is why for all of our technological inf- innovation and, and all the educational advancement that we have as a society, we still can't deal with basic things like racism. Still! Like this is 2018, Right? We still have a hard time with that one. Why? Because the problem isn't education. The problem is a heart condition. Sin isn't just... Sin isn't just, you know, the wrong things that you do. I remember when I was a kid and I would go and... I was part of a Catholic church and I would go and see the priest and I would go into confession and he would ask me if I had committed any sins. And in my little, like you know, 10-year-old mind, I'm thinking, okay, what did I do this week? And the only thing I ever came up with was the fact that I was mean to my sister. You know? That was, and I thought that that was really it. <laughs> that it was just that one Saturday morning when I took her favorite doll and I used it as a wrestling buddy and I completely tore it to bits and I gave it back to her. And I said, here, I hope it, you, know, you can put it back together. And she went screaming to my parents and then I, you know, I get in trouble. I thought that was my sin. It turns out sin is much deeper than that. Sin is the heart condition whereby we either live in outright rebellion against God or we live in apathetic indifference to Him. It's not just what we do with our hands. It's what is going on in our hearts. And what's going on in our hearts is that, that we're like a toddler standing in front of a highway And we want to get to the other side, but we tell our dad, no, I won't hold your hand. How foolish is it for that toddler to go running out into the street? Of course they're going to die. But that's what sin is. The essence of sin is to say, I want to live my own way without you, God. I want my own direction. I want my own help. I want my own authority. And, And... and so the, the essence, since the essence of sin is a heart condition, we have to understand that what that does to God is that it doesn't just break his code. It's not that God's just angry at us for not living up to his expectations. It breaks his heart. Because he wants to be in relationship with us. He wants to hold our hand across the dangers of life. But we refuse to. We say, I will go my own way. And all of us know that we've done this. We're not in right relationship with God. Now here's the issue. If we can't call a spade a spade, if we can't come to grips with what's actually going on in our hearts, if, if we blame the symptoms rather than the condition, then we don't escape from the morning. We just 
we, we spin our wheels in perpetual mourning. And we continue to be in bondage to it. It's like our friend thinking that the pain in her abdomen was just something that she ate. It was much more serious than that. I, here's the, and here's the issue. If we give it the wrong name, we end up in the wrong battle. Right? If you think that the primary problem in the world is that Republicans and Democrats don't get along, then you will sit on one side of that divide and you will blame the problems of the world on the other. If you don't think that's true, just watch your favorite cable news channel. And you'll see it play out. We're in the right, they're in the wrong. If they would just get right with us, then everything would be fine. Friends, it's not going to work. Because we're not naming the right thing. We have to come to the reality that we are exiles. We long to experience a world without the effects of sin. And, And to some degree, it's so foreign to us that we can't even imagine what it looks like. Can you imagine a day without hatred, without disparity, without all the things that divide people and cause them to fly planes into buildings? It's unimaginable to us, and yet we long for it. Friends, as Christians, it's okay to long and to mourn the world as it is. As Christians, we're not good at this at all, right? We're told that to be a Christian means that you look on the bright side of life, that we are half full kind of people, not half empty. And to some degree, that's true. We have, we have the greatest reason for hope of any people who exist on the planet. We have a king who's returning to make everything new again. And that helps us to endure. But Jesus was the most expectant, joy-filled person to ever walk the planet. You know what Isaiah says about him? He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He didn't just gloss over the pain and the grief of the world. He entered into it. In fact, when he... When he first goes into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, when when the crowds are singing Hosanna, Hosanna, when they're laying down at his feet and, and, and saying, we welcome you as our king, Jesus in his mind is anticipating how over the course of the next week they're going to reject him and despise him, that he's going to be rejected by the very people he's come to save. And he weeps over the city. He longs for its restoration. He says, oh, how I long to gather you in like a hen gathers in chicks. Let me ask you, when is the last time you wept over the condition of the world? When is the last time it grieved you to such a degree that you, that you cry out, Maranatha, Lord Jesus, come. It's okay to mourn. The world is not okay. Jesus is going to make it better. But here we find ourselves. All right. Those who mourn name the brokenness, but those who mourn also claim it. They claim it. See, it's not enough just to know that the world is broken. We have to know that the brokenness is a result of our heart's condition. We've actually contributed to it. 
here's the thing. If we don't do that, what's going to happen? If we know that the world is broken, but we either uh, explicitly or implicitly think that somehow we are absolved from the brokenness, what's likely to happen in your heart? Yeah, you blame. In other, you, you become inconvenienced by the sin of the world rather than broken by it. You think, man, I wish people would just like get their act together, <laughs> right? I, you know, do you ever do this? I wish people would just drive like me. That way, we would all get to work on time. I wish people would just do, you know, I mean, think of every area of life. That's so often the way that we think. We shift the blame to other people. We think that it's their problem. If they would just get right with God, then everything would be fine. I was really convicted of that this week. Um, as, as you know, we foster and um, we have a foster son. He's a young boy. Um, and there are certain toys that are appropriate for an age, a, a boy of his age. And there are certain toys that are not appropriate. Well, our foster son had a visit with his parents this week. And he comes home, and he comes home with a car. And you think, great, like a car, that's awesome. Um, but it was like one of those really heavy, die-cast metal uh, display cars. And all the doors open is like really intricate. The trunk opens and the hood opens. And it's got all these little pieces to it like side view mirrors. And you read the box and it says, now with over a hundred pieces for eight and older. You know what my reaction was? I can't believe he did that. Doesn't he realize? Like, this is completely inappropriate. In fact, Mandy went out somewhere and he's playing with it on the floor and he had in like five minutes had broken both the windshield wipers off and he was working on the side view mirror. Yeah. And he's like pulling at it, pulling at it. I'm like, that thing's going too. And who knows, the wheels are next, you know. And I texted Mandy something along the lines, like in my indignation, I can't believe, like how, how ridiculous, right? Later that night, I was on a run and I was praying as I often do when I run. And God often convicts me of things when I run, and I still run. I don't know why. (laughs) And one of the things that he convicted me of was how self-righteous I was in that moment. How much I thought that if this dad had acted more like me, then the world would be a better place. And God convicted me of that. How dare I shift my condition onto someone else without taking responsibility of it for myself? Now, in that moment, I realized that it was my sin that's contributed to creating the kind of world where a father is disconnected from his son. Where a father has no idea what a two-year-old needs in that stage of life. It's not just his problem. It's my problem. And part of the evidence that it's my problem is my own arrogance that I'm somehow a better dad, that I've somehow like achieved the, the pinnacle of dadhood. You know? 
Mourning is not just blaming someone else for the brokenness. It's not complaining about how things would be better if you were in charge. Mourning is being deeply grieved with the fact that I'm to blame for the brokenness of the world. There's an author by the name of G.K. Chesterton uh, who wrote in the early 20th century. And uh, this uh, newspaper was asking great men of the age to write essays on uh, towards the problem, what is wrong with the universe? What's the great problem? What is it that we're facing? And people were writing in on all kinds of different issues and all kinds of different ways, and they came to Chesterton, they asked him for his response, and he replied and sent in his essay of four words that said, Dear Sir, I am. So you you know that you're actually under the deception of the brokenness of the world when you say to yourself, I don't need God as much as those people who are really broken do. It's kind of like the, the toddler getting ready to cross the street going, I think I can make it across four lanes before I get hit by the truck. Who cares how many lanes you can get across? Right? We're all sunk without the hand of our dad. See, mourning means rather than comparing the insignificance in my sin to the seriousness of others, it's laying claim to your own. It's, it's saying like King David said in Psalm 51, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. He's saying, it doesn't matter how many animals I've slaughtered, how much I put on the altar and go, God, will you accept this? No! Because it's not an issue of your hands, it's an issue of your heart. And a heart that God accepts, a heart that God loves to bring comfort to, is a heart that weighs its own sin heaviest of all. You, I, I've, I've gotten the chance to do a lot of premarital counseling and I've gotten a chance to talk with a lot of married people and I've had the opportunity to be married for 12 years. You want to know what the number one um, uh, failure of marriage is? You want to know what the number one reason why marriages fail? People are going to tell you it's because of disagreements with money or sex. No, those aren't it. Those are symptoms. You want to know what it is? It's when one spouse says to the other one, your sin is greater than mine. That's, when, that's the beginning of the end. See, you start out the relationship thinking they're much better than you, right? You don't deserve them. Everybody says that when they're dating. Gosh, I, I married up. And I, in my case, it is completely true. So... <laughs> But somewhere along this line, we stop telling ourselves that. And the, 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 the things that you once thought were cute about your spouse suddenly become grating to you. And then you start to chalk those things up, not just as character flaws, but as sins that are, that are outweighing your own. And rather than taking the log out of your own eye to see things as they really are, you start to chalk up those things. You keep score. There's a reason why... 1 Corinthians says that love keeps no record of wrongs. Because we're really good scorekeepers when it comes to other people's failures. 
We have to weigh our own sin as greatest of all. That's why I say in every marriage I've ever conducted, I say the same thing. When two people learn how to do that, when they count their sin as greater than the sin of the other, you have the potential for a truly great marriage. Did I say that, Corey? Do you remember that? I said that to you guys too. Now, it's not just true in marriage. It's true of community in general. This is part of the reason why confession of sins is so vital to us thriving as a church. It's because our church and the church is meant to be a beautiful, messy family where, where God is cleaning up our mess, where it's, it's full of children who are honest with ourselves and one another about our brokenness, who don't conceal those things and hide them away. Now, you might be thinking, that sounds like an awful community to be a part of, where like, it sounds like such a downer where people are just talking about their sins all the time. I mean, who would want to like, participate in that, where everyone's just down on themselves? Just, but think about the alternative. What's the alternative to that? Isn't it a community where everyone pretends they're okay and secretly knows they're not? Isn't it a community where people look for the flaws in everyone else so that they can feel better about their own sinful heart? I'm sorry, but if that's the alternative, please, by all means, give me one of honesty and repentance and faith in Jesus. We envision the kind of community where each of us are known and accepted for who we really are, not just the facade that we put on on Sunday morning. And if you're not mourning your own sin on a regular basis, then chances are you're not experiencing the kind of community that Jesus died to create. Because that kind of community is a community of confession and honesty and openness about our brokenness. It's a, it's a community where we say to one another, I am the greatest of all sinners in this group of people. God so helped me to, to become new. And by the way, I, in my brokenness, since I'm the worst of all of us, I have no right to look down on you. In fact, I have every right to say I will help you in your condition if you will help me in mine. That's what it means to participate. Not just blaming, but claiming. That's the beginning of comfort. The beginning of comfort is realizing that there is something called sin and that is what's breaking the world. That that sin is in my own heart and not just in everyone else's. And that that sin is primarily directed at God, my creator, and not just at each other. You are not the cause of my sin. I am and you're not just the recipients of my sin, God is. I don't know if you ever realized this, but when David was confessing his sin, <clears throat> the sin that he had with uh, Bathsheba, what does he say in the Psalms? Do you remember? Yeah. Here's a man who just um, committed adultery with one of his closest friends and then had him murdered on the front line of battle. And when he confesses his sins, he says, God, against you and you alone have I sinned. 
uh, he's not discounting the 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 overflow of his sin onto his friend, but what he's doing is he's realizing that the the genesis of where it all began was a distrust of God. It was a brokenness in relationship with God. That if he were walking with God and 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 he, having his heart healed by God on a regular basis, he would never have entertained those other things. And we have to understand that because when sin grips our heart and when we realize that that sin is primarily a brokenness with our Heavenly Father, that's the beginning of comfort. Because here's the thing, if God is the recipient of our brokenness, if he's the one that we've sinned against, then that gives him the power to restore us. He can do something about it. Now, in Lamentations 5, the author, if you remember at the end, the way that that ended, has no idea if God is going to forgive them. He has no clue. The way it ends is he says, maybe you'll reject us forever. He has no idea what's going to happen next. And yet years later, another writer comes along named Isaiah who's thinking about the future and he says this about the one who is going to come. And then ultimately Jesus takes those same words and he declares them at the beginning of his ministry. If you remember this, Isaiah 61, he says, and, and this is Jesus quoting Isaiah saying, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You know what he's saying? God has not rejected you forever. I've come to restore what was lost. And then Isaiah goes on in very curious language and he says, And the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all those who mourn, and to provide those who grieve in Zion. To bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. The oil of joy instead of mourning. And the garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Jesus comes and he quotes these words as a way of saying, I haven't rejected you. In fact, I'm here to bind up those who are broken over their sin. I'm here to release those who are bound by shame. I'm here to comfort those who mourn the brokenness of this world. And so don't ignore it. Don't blame. Come to me with your brokenness. Come to me in your sin. I might think, how do I know that I can trust him with it? How can I be honest with it? And the answer is going to be very strange. The way that you can know that you can come to God with your sin in your brokenness is because of his vengeance. That's what Isaiah says. Now immediately, three quarters of you are going, uh, if, he's, if that's what it... I, yeah. <laughs> what do you mean vengeance? Vengeance means he's coming to, to punish, right? He's coming to take revenge. Uh, Well, yeah, he is, but you don't get the comfort of God without the vengeance of God. If you want a great picture of this, you look at Jesus as his friend Lazarus' tomb, right? He's told about his friend who's died. He comes uh, into the scene and there are people mourning. There are people in, in need of great comfort. 
And do you know what Jesus does? Does he go up to the crowds and say, there, there, it's all going to be fine? No, he marches up to the tomb. And what is he doing as he marches to the tomb? Those of you who are familiar with the story. He's weeping. And he's angry. But what is he angry at? Is he angry at the crowds that they don't have enough faith? Is he angry at his friend Lazarus for dying in an untimely way? (laughs) No, he's angry at death itself. In fact, if you go back and you read the original language, what you see is that Jesus is, it's, he uses the same word to his anger that a, a bull uses when it snorts as it's about to charge into something. He's furious, and he's furious at death. Why? Because death is the intruder. Death is unnatural. Death is, is invading his perfect world, and he's angry at it. He's vengeful towards it. He wants to do battle against it, and he does. And they roll the tomb away, and he says to his friend, come out. And he overcomes death. And he fights against it. And then what happens on the other side? Everyone's comforted. Jesus is able to comfort those because he's vengeful against what's wrong with the world. And that's what we see in Jesus' death. Is that on the cross, Jesus has come to punish sin without punishing us. That he's come to destroy the brokenness without destroying his children. I mean, people always ask this question, why does the world continue to be broken if Jesus has come already? And the answer is, he does not want to destroy us while destroying the brokenness of our sin. He wants to lead as many people out of their sin before finally dealing with it all together. And perhaps he's waiting for you, if that's the case. That he wants to lead you out of it without destroying you. But you have to know that that when Jesus came, he didn't come to bring punishment for sin. He came to bear punishment himself. He took it upon Himself. That's what the cross is all about. Because on the cross, all the words of Isaiah 61 get fulfilled. That on the cross, Jesus receives the ashes of death so that we receive the beauty of God's presence forever. On the cross, Jesus receives the weight of our sins so that we get the joy of forgiveness poured over our head like oil. That on the cross, Jesus receives the spirit of despair and cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we can be clothed in the garment of God's praise and his beloved forever. In other words, Jesus exchanges all that he has for all that you have. He does the exchanging. And all of that means that you can do the exchanging too. That you can come to him with your brokenness. And you can exchange that brokenness for, for comfort. And so that you, don't ignore your sin. And don't wallow in your sin. But hand your sin over to him. Recognize that it's more than you can bear, but that Jesus came to bear it for you. I was realizing when, with my kind of judgmental attitude towards another dad. Um, 
and God convicting me of that, that he was showing me my sin. But you know what he also did? He reminded me of this exchange. That there are several times when I fail as a dad, but God has never failed me. There's so often when I think that I'm doing a better job than I am, when God is really just being patient and, and turning my, my failed attempts at being a dad into, into great things. That ultimately the person that my kids need the most is not me, but it's him. And that my job is to lead them to him over and over and over again. I just want to encourage you, you don't need to hide your sin. He sees it anyway. And you don't need to walk in condemnation because he's removed it. And so you can offer it up to him and ask for his perfection in exchange for your ashes. Jesus says, that's the kind of person that I've come to comfort. He wants to do that work in your heart. So let's pray and ask him to do it. Father, we do thank you that you exchange ashes for beauty. That when we are broken over the brokenness, and when we claim it as our own, when we come to you knowing that you are waiting for us with open arms to receive us again and make us new, that's when we find comfort. Jesus, we recognize that you are the great physician. That you're a physician in that you don't just want to medicate our condition, you are a surgeon that wants to cut it out of us. God, I pray right now even that you would put your finger on an area of our heart that needs comfort and that you would root out the brokenness of where we're trying to find comfort already. Forgive us, Lord, for embracing the comfort of this world. The comfort that says we should hide our sin or manage it or blame it on others or ignore it altogether. All of those things, God, we just confess they lead to death. Jesus, come as a surgeon. Reveal our heart's deepest need. Remove what we're looking to to replace you and put yourself in that place. God, we want your comfort. Holy Spirit, be, be what Jesus promised that you would be, the great comforter who comforts us in our time of need. And we pray that that would result in, in us being a community that mourns, but also a community that's full of joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.